Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. Sienter here also. <laughs> this cad. Uh, so. I need to preserve my voice after talking so much last week. <laughs> so we've got another podcast for you. And this time, as promised, uh, we're going to go into more depth of the kinds of games that influenced me uh, as a designer. Redco, by the way. And uh, you may recognize that particular phrase from our first podcast, because... I certainly did. Inside of all of the semblance, yes, I was there. <laughs> yep. So let's go ahead and roll right forward. So one of the things I want to preface with is as a designer in general, there's a lot of things that, you know, really excite me about games and the idea of just it's this interactive medium that you, uh, the audience gets to really interact with and affect everything inside of it. And so one of the things that throughout my personal gaming history, one of the things that will really define a lot of the stuff that I liked is things that allow you to really interact with it in a non-trivial manner. So we'll go all the way back to NES era. There were a lot of games I played back then. Some of them were better designed than others. I mean, everyone knows about like the Marios and stuff like that. But the Mario games, while I enjoyed them, uh, and I do have very fond memories of them, uh, they're not necessarily the uh, one of the core definers of you know some of my thoughts about certain elements of design. One of the games that really uh, gets into there is the Mega Man games. And there's a couple of reasons why that series of games, you know, from Mega Man, no surname or extra number. Just the Mega Man. All the way up to, um, well, I won't say all the way up to now because there have been some pretty sucky ones, but up to the Mega Man Zero series and everything inside of that. One of the things that consistently brings me back to that series and just what I think about it is there's a lot of things that are firing on all cylinders in those games. Like the music is almost always amazing. The way that they use their sound is almost always really good. And there's this very tight precision to the way the play works and a lot of things about how you go into fights and the fact that it is a game that you can get really good at. And then you have that extra element of, you know, choosing where you want to go and who you want to fight. All of those things kind of go into um, what I liked about the Mega Man series. But again, it's a big thing about those games is it set a precedent for me with regards to this is what it feels like to be good at a game. And I want to let people get there and do that. Or you want to, to make games that have that you can get good at it factor and, and enjoy being good at it. Exactly. And, you know, this uh, reverberates through some other parts of it because we get to one of the games that I've mentioned on multiple occasions, which is the Devil May Cry series, save for two. We don't talk about Devil May Cry 2. But the Devil May Cry series, uh, for those of you who don't know um, about Dante and his crazy white hair, the whole point of those games is that you're a demon hunter and the game kind of appropriately represents this. Well, you're a half demon demon hunter, so it's going to be kind of hard and you have to go hard to beat them. But one of the things about it is that this game doesn't just emphasize that aspect of you can get good at it, but it also makes you put on a show. It lets you put on a show. 
And there's something really, really attractive to me about that concept of not only do you get to get in there, but you get to really have fun with it and make it yours. And that's something that really appeals to me and something that I really want to try and bring out in other games is that not only can you interact with this game in a way, but it's tuned to allow you to try new things, do interesting things with it. Yeah, something that you were saying there, it's not just put on a show, it's put on your show. And it rewards you for that. Most definitely. Like, if you want to see what I'm talking about, just look up Devil May Cry 4 combo videos. I'm not kidding you, those exist, and they are beautiful. And I mean, the Bayonetta series, just so you know, that's a part of that whole thing. I actually put those into the same space. But moving on from there, one of the other things that I really, really enjoy um, in games is, like I said, uh, with Devil May Cry, I was talking about self-expression, putting on your show. But then you get into games where not only are you putting on your own show, but you're making the game do what you want it to do, pulling out of it what you want from it. The first game that I ran into that made me go, oh, in this way was the Armored Core series, specifically Armored Core 3. That was the one that I really dug into that just really got me. I find it interesting we both had mech games that we really liked. <laughs> hey, guys like giant robots. I mean, chicks like giant robots. I like giant robots. I'm pretty sure many of you like giant robots. Everybody digs giant robots. <laughs> but it's not just the giant robots for Armored Core. It's the fact that when you're making your machine, there are all of these little knobs and dinghies that you just got to get them, you put them together, and they start affecting each other in weird ways where, like, I want to make a mech that does the Macross missile barrage, so I want to put all of these missiles on there. Well, that's going to be a huge heat draw. How are you going to deal with that? Well, I've got this coolant here. I'm going to put that in there. Well, that's energy draw. Well, I got this other thing, and then I need to lighten my weight, and there's just all sorts of little things where if you enjoy the game, you will spend hours in the customization screen just going, oh, I have 50 different heads and they all do different things. I want this one because it looks good, but I need the rest of them to work right. That sort of thing really makes me uh, enjoy a game. So that's one of the things that I also want to try and bring out in my own stuff is that level of customization, that level of meaningful self-expression. Yeah, I see that as something that we overlap on for sure. Mm -hmm. And so going from there, one of the other games that influenced me a lot, it's another series. In this case, it's the third one that we don't talk about. It's the Rogue Squadron series. Now, it's a movie-based game, and you're like, really? You're influenced by a movie-based game? And I defy you, sir, because sometimes there are good ones. You just have to know where to look. Yep, it happens. I heard there's a good Spider-Man one, too. Oh, yeah. Well, Spider-Man was one of, well, I won't say one of the earliest best ones. The One of the earliest good ones was Batman on the NES. Great soundtrack. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, the play is, well, the play is, hasn't aged as well, but at the time, it was the bee's knees. But I digress. With Rogue Squadron, one of the things, and I know a part of it is there's this personal bit with me because I read the Rogue Squadron books and the Race Squadron books, but they paid attention to everything with regards to how the lore worked and brought that out in how the game plays. 
Uh, it really felt good to fly the X-Wing. It really felt good to go through all of the areas. And this was really my first encounter with a flight sim-style game. Now, I've played the Rogue Squadron on the N64. Yeah. I don't know where that one is in the series. N64 one is the first. Okay. Um, and then you get the second one, which is the strongest of the series, which it really saddens me that I don't remember the, uh, the name. But it's the strongest in the series. And one of the things about that one is just the mission design is really cool. There's this sense of freedom where you have your objectives at the very start. And you're like, okay, you need to destroy this. You need to destroy this. There's probably a weapon hidden in there somewhere because every mission has one. And at some point, some event is going to happen. So you have these different elements of, okay, I need to figure out which mission I want to take on first. And I know that this other thing is going to happen soon. So I have to start making myself efficient. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask, how well did it do for setting up missions that were fun to replay? Uh, I remember GoldenEye, and I feel like that one, the the first one uh, that I played on the N64, both kind of suffered a little bit from not having missions that I really wanted to replay, despite really liking the game otherwise. Yeah, I will say that Rogue Squadron, for me... And granted, I'm a guy who will go through a thing over and over and over again. Um, so it might not hold as much credence, but I did enjoy going through a lot of the missions over and over again, in part because there was a lot of efficiencies that you could affect while going through them. Being able to take different ships into the missions actually drastically changed a lot of what you did in them. And um, there was something to be said for just trying different things inside of the missions. Now, granted, there wasn't as much freedom as one might want, per se, but there was definitely something there that clicked with me. It actually, just just thinking about this to try to keep a very brief aside, I would love to see a Star Wars sort of open space game like uh, Elite Dangerous or something. That would be interesting, and I'd have to check and see what the old uh, TIE Fighter and stuff games were like, as I'm also reminded of Shadows of the Empire, which was, well, there was one standout scene in that game that I remember mostly, but in either case, I'm getting off topic. But one of the other games that is a big influence on me um, was Ikaruga. Now, if you want to talk about a game that epitomizes what its genre is, you look no further. There may be other games in the scrolling shoot 'em up genre, but I feel that on every level, Ikaruga performs. And that is why that game leaves an impact on me. Like, its music is amazing. It works with how the medium is presented. The way the music interacts with what you're doing on screen, it's actually timed with what you're doing. And it takes into account the fact that a certain level is 2 minutes and 46 seconds long before you get to the boss. The song is exactly that length, and it actually has swells and changes with how the stage works. That in of itself is just magical to me. That type of interaction is something that you can only do with that genre, but that's what makes it so magical. Yeah, one of the things I'm noticing is a, another more uh, side-recurring theme is how much music is important to your game experience. Almost definitely. I'm a huge audiophile. When we went to Highway to the Moon, I was making all of the music for that game and really trying to understand the creative process of um, incepting something for a purpose. Not to get too far off topic, but uh, one of the most outstanding pieces that I remember as far as music is concerned is Peter and the Wolf, where every character has a theme and those themes interplay with each other and they tell a story. 
Um, it's the same reason why I like Henry Mancini as a musician. He always tells a story with his music. And that is something that is just as important in games, I feel. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, is it the most important thing? Mm. Gameplay always trumps. But it's still that idea that whenever I hear it and whenever I see it, I'll know. I'll notice. One of the big things for me is fighting games. They filled a large portion of things that I played for a long time. And I loved being able to interact with other people and play against them. Because there's something that comes out of facing off against another person that you don't get out of most AIs. Um, you know, that's something to work towards changing. But at current, there is nothing like facing off against another person. And it's not just the glory of victory and whatever it is of loss. I always forget what the thing is. That's not what does it for me. What does it for me is getting in there and being freed to do what I want and try my hardest against someone else. I don't care if I win or lose. I want to have an interesting fight. That's what draws me to those sorts of games. So there are many fighting games that I've played over the years, but the one that specifically is a firing on all cylinders moment for me is the Soul Calibur series. Once again, another game that has an amazing soundtrack. I tell you now, go look it up. But I digress. Great soundtrack that works towards a Narvazod that also works towards the play of the game, which is this thing of where we're kind of in medieval times and we've got different warriors all fighting over the, the great evil blade. And some of them don't even realize that it's evil. But the thing that really got me about that game on the gameplay level is just how unique everyone was. Everyone had their own sense of character, their own sense of movement, their own way of doing things. And when you got into the meat and potatoes of actually playing that game, it wasn't about rote memorization. It wasn't about doing something until your fingers just did it automatically and then finding the way to cheese your opponent to death. It was more about the tit for tat. It was more about player versus player. I make an action. What is your response? Your response is that. Now I make this action. Or you make an action. What is my response? And that is key to what I enjoy about finding games is that interplay of player versus player. We're having a conversation. We just happen to be doing it with our fists. Yeah, it, it seems to me from a lot of what you've been saying so far that self-expression is super important to you in games. And in these versus games, you want to see your opponent express themselves just as much as you want to express yourself. Almost definitely. It really doesn't do anything for me if I just stomp you. It's done. It's not fun. And that's one of the other things that Soul Calibur 2 did was that it made it a lot easier for people to play against each other and learn from those matches rather than having to go to a board somewhere find some random tidbit of arcane information, or be that guy, that guy who spends hours going, the frames are this. No, 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 no. They're this. Yes, yes, write it down. No, that's completely wrong. You know the one, the obsessive guy. I don't want you to have to be that to enjoy a game. I want you to go in there and feel like you can try at it. Not feel like you can win easily. That's not what it's about. But I want you to go in there and feel like there is something that you can do that only you can do. Well, that would be the ideal. But, you know, with character archetypes, that's not going to be the case. But you do you through the character. And the reason why you chose that character is because you like being them. 
And I mean, there's plenty of other things about how that game fires on all cylinders. I've said it in the past. I don't think I've said it in a podcast, but there's a whole dissertation I could write on just what it is that makes Soul Calibur 2, in my opinion, one of the best fighting games of all time. But moving on from there, one of the games that was actually very affecting to me, and this one's not going to be very well known by people, is a game called Radiata Stories. Now, it's one of three RPGs that are in my list of games that affect me. Uh, and there's a reason for this. I'm an action guy, so I tend not to gravitate towards more story-based things. Uh, experiences that are maybe slower paced and don't have as much action? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really more the idea there. Uh, at least anything that doesn't have nearly as much interest in the action, I should say. Um, so Radiata Stories is an RPG, and it just happens to have a brawler element attached to it in its combat system. But the thing that really got me on that game was that was one that drew me in because of how their characters were handled in it. Because Radiata Stories has a similar thing to what Majora's Mask did. Uh, now, Majora's Mask, briefly, you have three days, people are on their cycles, they're going through their daily lives, and they're going to do a bunch of things. And by following them through their cycles, you get to know who they are, and you begin to care about them. So Radiata Stories works off of this idea that each day actually progresses such that there are, I think, hours are cut down to minutes, basically. That sort of thing's fairly typical. Yeah. And the idea is that everyone in town, they don't just have this one spot that they hang out at. They're doing all sorts of things throughout the day, such to the point where you'll have a guy who you pass by him on the street at one point. You're like, you know what? I'm going to follow him. And you end up going through the sewers and you come back out of the sewers. You go into the wizardry room and you follow him through there. He starts talking to some people. And then you end up on the darkest side of the district. You're like, what are you doing here? Why do you go through all these places? And the whole thing about Radiata Stories is that everyone in the home city has this sort of thing going on. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so that has forever left an impact on me because I've seen so many games where it's uh, you go to the guy and it's like, I sit on this rock. That's what I do. And you talk to him and he, he tells you about how lovely that rock is. You play through two-thirds of the game, you come back, and he still tells you about how great that rock is to sit on. Yeah. And like, it, haven't you noticed anything that's happened in the world, guy? He's like, nope. <laughs> but that was the interesting thing about Radiata Stories, was as you progressed the game, different characters would start doing different things. As you talked to them and did different things with them, their patterns around town would change. And it would be to the point where you're like, this guy always goes to the bar. He's not there. Something is wrong. Oh, wait, that's right. I kicked him in the shins that last time to galvanize him. I wonder what he's doing now. And then you find him somewhere else. And then you get him to join your party. <laughs> um, incidentally, you could recruit almost everyone in town in that game. <laughs> that's pretty neat. You're, you're kind of making me want to find this thing and play it. So, yeah, um, right out of stories. That left an impact on me very quickly. Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne, um, which I forget what the Shin Megami Tensei stands for. I'm sure somebody's going to shout at me and be like, it means this! But, um, you know, any case, uh, the thing about that game was First off, the story was very affecting and very different. I mean, the whole concept of it was that you're a human, you survive the end of the world, now the world is full of demons, and you're not sure if you're a demon yourself, because 
that seems to be the only way you would have survived. Um, and so you basically start going through the world and interacting with all of these other strange beings from different fairy tales, um, which is a common thing in the Shin Megami Tensei series where they take Norse mythology, they take Gaelic mythology, they take Japanese mythology, they take even Christian mythology. Nothing is sacred and just put everybody in there. They make them people that can be added to your party, basically. But one of the things that really caught me about that game was the combat system. Because up until that point, I was under the impression that, you know, when you get into a turn-based game, mostly you're going to be like, I find the best option, and I find the healing ability, and then I win. I just win. Win at winning. Sometimes they're a little more complex than that, but not much. Not in my experience. And, you know, people will tell me I'm wrong, but this is my experience. <laughs> but in either case, with Shin Megami Tensei, the thing that changed was that suddenly I was in combat situations where every decision mattered because I would lose turns if I made the wrong decisions. Or if I didn't make the right preparations, I'd end up in a really bad way later on in the match. And this was what I craved. I craved an experience where my decisions mattered, what I did mattered, whether I won or lost was because I made a decision. It wasn't because of a random num number generator or because my level just happened to be that high. That was something that I really appreciated from that game. Then we have the last of the RPGs in my list. Um, and this was because it was a group effort and it was actually partially responsible for me meeting one of the members of Vernacular and for bringing together a huge set of friends that I have. It was the Tales of series, and those games are forever in my echelons of influence because of the fact that they actually allowed the four-party setup to be controlled by four players, and you needed to work together to make a difference. And that difference of you working together and being a good team, you actually felt it. Um, it wasn't just your levels. You were actually doing well in those games. For those of you who don't know, the Tales of series is basically a, um, it's an exploratory game that also has brawler elements inside of it. Well, actually, I guess it would be closer to... It's almost like Smash Brothers for the combat system. Yeah. Uh, not quite the same, because it's like if you were to interpret Smash Brothers into a pseudo 3D... Yeah, it's if Smash Brothers was an isometric 3D game. My memories are with Tales of the Abyss, Tales of Vesperia, and Tales of Graces. Those three games in particular, those were the ones that I went through with my buddies. And again, the biggest thing was all of the characters were unique. You got to really express yourself in that game, which, you know, that's a thing for me. Yeah. The stories were from decent to passable. It's really dependent on which ones. Each one had their own strength. Symphonia is unbeatable. Well, yeah. In Symphonia, if you get the... Uh, there's a special edition where the camera actually works when you have four people. <laughs> seems like it might be an important uh, option. Yeah. Well, it's important for when you've got couch play. Yeah. But yeah, so the Tales of series was very affecting for me, and it's something that I do aspire to make eventually, a four-on-the-floor RPG game that features live real-time uh, Yeah, fighting. I can see that being a lot of fun. I'll probably f try to find some way to uh, force Guild Wars 1 build system into it. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I want to see it in more places, people. More places. <laughs> but yeah, so um, that's a lot of them. Um, I will. What I will note about Dark Souls is that it is another firing on all cylinders moment. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many things that that game does right 
And so very few things that that game does wrong, or rather does in such a manner that you could interpret it as unfavorable to its experience. Yeah. One thing that I want to discuss very briefly about Dark Souls, actually, while we're on it, is that we play it very differently. Oh, yes. Um, Yes, we do. For example, my first character tends to devolve into trying to do everything and not 100% succeeding. And I like try to upgrade all of the weapons and everything. And and I think you tend to have a lot more of a focused, here's my first character, here's what I want to do with my character sort of thing, more so than I do, especially at first. Yeah, I'm a very targeted person. Like when I started playing the Dark Souls games, it was always, this character is this. So he does these things. That means I'm going to be trying to find this kind of weapon, and I'm going to be raising him this way. And then I would make another slot, and this character would be this one. So, like, my first character, I think I named him Malkuth. My first character is always a dex magician, and so that means there is a specific... I'm going to look for what I feel is um, my favorite dex weapon. I'm going to find my favorite staff, and I'm going to find my favorite spells, and I'm going to raise my character to try and make the best dex magician I can. Then there's Jemima. Yeah, Aunt Jemima, like the syrup woman, who is a faith tank. She's just lots of HP, lots of endurance, whatever I can to put armor on her, and whatever is considered the best faith magics, or what I consider to be the best faith magics. And, you know, even if there's a better way to play the character, if that deviates from my initial set of what I want the character to be, I probably won't do it. So that's uh, that's a thing for how I tend to play through games. I tend to actually impose rules <laughs> on myself. You probably role play more strongly than I do, especially from a mechanical sense. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Last two things: Zone of the Enders and Virtual On. And we're gonna hit these real quick. Um, so first off, Zone of the Enders. What was affecting about that game? It was free motion in space and lots of lots of really fast action. And it afforded me a precision that I didn't think was possible in 3D motion. From my first encountering with that game, I have wanted to continue that tradition. I have wanted to make something that in the 3D space rewards precision play and allows the player to do what they want without the game getting in the way. The games haven't aged as well as they could have, but I still have to give my kudos to Hideo. Um, He did a good job on those games. And then we have Virtual On. What can I say about Virtual On? The main thing is it's in the fighting genre, and people might not call it a fighting game, but I tell you that it is at least a versus game because it allows the form of self-expression that is inherent to these games. And it is that player versus player, I'm talking to you with my guns, basically, at this point. Yeah. Um, But there's a lot of really cool things that they did in that game, and there are very few games like it. Over in Japan, there's a Gundam series that basically lifts a lot of the a lot of the core elements of that series. I actually managed to get somebody to bring it back for me so I could try it out. I don't remember the name of it, but, you know, (laughs) if you guys want it, just put a comment up there. I'll find the name of it and then translate it from Japanese. (laughs) 
learning Japanese, by the way. But yeah, so that's the thing. At the end of the day, the things that make me as a designer, self-expression is a huge thing. I really want my players to be able to do what they want and do what they feel like doing in these games. Now, I do feel that there is a guiding hand that needs to be there. That's what a designer is. He's able to guide them in a way that allows them to find what they want to do. But at the same time, I still want them to have their experience because that is something that only we can give as game designers is when you go to interact with this thing, it's you interacting with it. It's not me. It's not Sienter. It's you. Now, you might be interacting with us by proxy, uh, and that's the whole thing of theming in Narvazod. We'll be telling you things. We'll be giving you messages. We'll be doing all sorts of things. We'll be talking to you through the game. But at the end of the day, you're talking back. And I really want to have a conversation with you. Yeah. By way of wrapping up these two podcasts about our influences, one of the things I think is very interesting to look at is how divergent they are. Mm -hmm. um, you've played a lot more console games than I have. I didn't start doing stuff with consoles until the Nintendo 64. Most definitely. And I've always been much more of a PC gamer than a console gamer. And, and I've had a lot of a boon lately as the rise of Steam and, and a lot of the console experiences have come to PC. Uh, and I've enjoyed them a lot. But it's interesting to see how these very different trajectories have led us through very different games. Mm -hmm. And I also see the overlap in some of our desires of making games that allow for self-expression. Oh, yeah. And, and also, I think we both have a desire to have games that allow people to build up skill at them and to, oh, yeah, that, to do that as well. There Definitely, I do feel like we both have that. That feeling of there is something really rewarding about getting good at something. There is, and then having that be significant matter. So I, I look forward to uh, the experiences we make together, and I appreciate that we have very divergent gaming backgrounds because of the different experiences that it brings, and it, it allows us to be able to say, oh, here's this game that I remember playing. The other person can say, oh, this is a, a perfect you know, comparison to this or whatever. And yeah, yeah. It's very neat that way, but it also means that when we're discussing stuff, we do have a bit of a tendency to lean on our common experience, which is very narrow. Yeah, it's it's true. Like, there's a reason why Mario 64 comes up constantly whenever we're doing stuff. Yeah, I um, should have mentioned it uh, during my time, but... Nah. Well, you know... Oh, well. There's a number of games that I kept thinking during while you're talking, like, oh, I wish I had mentioned that, but... Uh, you know, we've got plenty of... Well, I, I think we have plenty of time. We'll have other podcasts where we can talk about whatever. Yeah, it's true. Anyway, uh, thank you for uh, listening to these slightly more personal episodes. I hope it gives you stuff to think about, too, about what influences your your gaming, uh, your, your preferences also. And looking at that through line, mm -hmm. like Redcoat was talking about, great soundtracks and good use of sound effects or something that is important to him yeah. that, that he really notices that ability for self-expression and wanting that is something that he really notices as a through line mm -hmm. for him and being able to do that for your own self and your own analysis of what games do you like and why can really help a lot with interactions and recognizing that different games are made for different groups of people. Mm -hmm. Certainly there's going to be a number of games that both Redcoat and I enjoy, but there's going to be games that he enjoys that I don't and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And uh, being glad for that space. And so... I think uh, that will bring us to the sign-off. I want to thank you all for indulging us on this and letting us talk at you a little bit about what we've played. And remember, if you're going to be a designer, definitely think on these things. 
because it's very important to look through what your identity as a game as a game player is and then what you want to tell everyone else what experience do you want to give people as for me it is all about that giving people something worthwhile yeah well this is Santier signing off and this is Redco signing off play the games you want to play boyos